0: Well, it is exciting to be with you this morning. You know, the Baptist Convention of New England walks with our 380 churches that we have spread around New England. You know, serving in New England, if you're, whether you're the pastor or the youth pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a WMU leader or a disaster relief volunteer, whatever you might be serving in New England can sometimes feel lonely. You think you're the last one left who's volunteered sometimes. And sometimes it's just hard. You ever feel like it's just hard? You know, like today was a good day. But in February, when there's snow coming everywhere and you're thinking, are any of those children going to even show up for Sunday school? And yet, you know, you got to show up anyway, right? It's hard. Uh, And the Baptist Convention of New England walks with our churches during the good times and during the hard times to equip them, to encourage them, and to partner with them so that together we might reach New England with the gospel. And you're a part of that. Uh, your church is incredibly generous with your mission giving, one of our top 25 giving churches. Thank you for that. Uh, you're also incredibly generous with your pastor. He's on our board of directors. He's actually the chairman of one of our standing committees, so that takes some of his time. And we thank you for letting him be a part of that. He brings a fresh young voice to the table that really is a blessing to us. So it is working, your sacrifices and your time and your effort. It is making a difference. So thank thank God for it. I just wanted to start by saying thank you. I think it's very easy for us to forget to say thank you. So I want to start by saying thank you. So thanks for being part of our group and we're glad that your church is significantly making a difference in New England. Well, we are looking at the book of Haggai this morning. Uh, you're probably thinking, where is that? That is in the Old Testament. It's not a fake book. It's not like Hezekiah. It's a real book, okay? Haggai. It's in the Old Testament. It's real thin. You'll find it back there in the back of the Old Testament. We'll be in uh, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. Now, I have good and I have bad news for you. Uh, The bad news is I typically preach for about an hour and 10 minutes. I don't know why you're laughing, okay? Here's the good news. I talk really fast and I can get an hour and 10 minutes done in about 40 minutes and if you say amen a lot, I talk faster. So you get to decide if you want it. We can be done in 25 minutes if you say amen a lot. Oh, there we go. All right. (laughs) You guys decide, but I do talk fast, so you'll have to put your listening ears on and run with me. Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your full. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and to build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. And we ask God to put His blessing on the reading of His Word. In order to understand this passage of Scripture, first we must understand a little bit of the historical context of what was going on in because without the historical context, it's just a bunch of words. So in order to understand this, you actually have to go back about 70 or 80 years before the Scripture happened. In 605 B.C., the Jews were carried away into exile uh, from from Israel uh, by their enemies. Now, God allowed this to happen because they had over and over and over and over and over again disobeyed Him, followed false idols, false gods, and done all kinds of things that they were not supposed to do. And you might say, well, my goodness, that seems like a terrible punishment. I can't believe God will let them all be carried away away into exile we're talking about hundreds of years of sinfulness this wasn't like they had a bad week or a bad month they had had generation after generation of saying with their mouth we serve the Lord but saying with their life we serve ourselves and we serve all the false gods and even though our God is long-suffering and he gives us more than one chance aren't you glad for that There we go. I'm so glad He's the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and the fifth chance and the sixth chance. If He wasn't, we'd all be in trouble. But at some point, we have our last chance. And whatever that last chance is, once we've had it, all that's left after that is judgment. And that's exactly where the Israelites found themselves in this passage of Scripture. They had had incredible long suffering from God. They had had an incredible number of chances. And finally... They had been carried off into exile because at this point, grace wasn't going to do any any, more. What they needed now was judgment. And so they got carried off into exile. And for 70 years, that's two and a half generations, they had lived as exiles in this other country, this foreign land. Uh, Many of them were slaves. A few of them had perhaps won their freedom. But for the most part, they were subjugated to this other foreign power. Seventy years later, the Persian king Cyrus, he decided to allow a tiny little bit of them, a tiny number of them, to return to Jerusalem. That's a whole other story for a whole other sermon. That's pretty cool. But a few of them get to come back. By the time we get to this scripture that we read, ten years has gone by. So again, get this in your head. Generations of disobedience. Everyone's carried away. Seventy years in captivity. A few of them got to come back, and now they've been ten years back in the land. Haggai was the very first prophet that God raised up after the Jews had returned to the land. And this scripture was his message to those that had, had returned, and he was trying to speak to them. And so in verse 2, he says to the people, these people say, referring to the people there, that this handful that had come back, the time has not yet come to build the Lord's house. Uh, the exiles, when they returned to the land God had given them, a very clear word that one of the first things they were supposed to do, one of their first priorities, was to rebuild the temple where they could worship the Lord. Now, of course, we know that God does not need a temple. All right, um, God can—we can worship God under a tree. Uh, we can worship God at home. Uh, we can worship God standing in the parking lot. We know that God does not need a temple. Who needs the temple in order to gather to worship? Yeah, we do. Because most of us, let's just be honest, if we stayed home this morning with Brother Sheets and Sister Pillow, most of us would not be worshiping, okay? Let's just be honest, all right? We wouldn't be, all right? I heard a guy say one time, well, I can go fishing and pray to the Lord. I said, I'm not sure praying for a bigger fish counts. (laughs) You know, the reality is we know that we don't have to have a building to worship. But there is something about gathering in a place to worship that does something for us. It's for us, not for God. Okay, He doesn't need it. And here in New England, it's particularly important to have a building because some of us who, uh, or some of you who are native New Englanders, what do you think of some of us who come from somewhere else and say we're going to start a church and we're going to do it in a school cafeteria? And you look at us like we're some kind of wacko cult leaders or something like that. Are they drinking poison Kool Aid or what are they doing? All right, if you've been here for generations, then you know that church building that looks like a church building is even more important, perhaps in New England than it is in other places. So we understand makes sense to us as New Englanders that God says, hey, one of the first things I want you to do is rebuild the temple so you'll have a place to worship. Now, they've been in the land for 10 years. 10 years they've been back. And they have not yet even started rebuilding the temple. And Haggai sort of is raised up to kind of look him in the eye and say, hey, like, what, what's going on? It, it's been a decade. For a decade, like, what's going on? Now, their excuse was it's not the right time yet to rebuild the temple. Now, there is some validity to that, right? Because timing is important. Uh, I remember uh, I was serving in Vermont uh, in the 2008. Uh, remember the 2008 crisis, financial crisis? Uh, if, you were, if you had any money in the stock market, you remember it, all right, when you lost 40% of it overnight, right? Anyway, in the 2008 crisis, we had a couple of churches in Vermont that were thinking about building an addition during that financial crisis wisely they decided to put that off because it probably wasn't the right time to build an addition when most of the people in the congregation had just lost 40% of their retirement savings, all right? So timing is sometimes important, but for these people, we're talking about a decade. I would think at some point during a decade, the timing would be right. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he's been dating this girl, and she's obviously wanting him to propose. you know. And so I said, well, how long have you guys been dating? And he did, did the math in his head. He said, about six years, but the timing hasn't been right. I'm like, dude, six years? You better grab this one. If she's stuck with you for six years and you ain't proposed yet, you better get this one. You know, It is amazing to me how we use excuses to keep from doing what we know in our hearts God wants us to do. And while timing is an important consideration, at some point we cross the line from timing to disobedience. And where that line is might be different for each person because of our personal situations in our life and all of that kind of stuff. But for these people in this scripture, they had clearly crossed, crossed the line from timing to disobedience. And so God raised up the prophet Haggai to sort of look him in the eye and say, Look, guys. This is not about timing. This is about your heart, and your heart is not in it. We tend to be good at making excuses for why we cannot obey the Lord right now. Do you know what an excuse is? You might want to write this down. All right, Maybe you want to tweet it if you're a tweeter. Tweeter, Twitter, 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 twat, twat, whatever it is. All right, Write this down. here. Are you ready for this? you know what an excuse is? It's the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Think about that for a moment. An excuse is the skin of a reason. It sounds good on the outside but it's stuffed with a lie. We know it's not true. Probably everyone hearing it knows it's not true. It sounds good on the outside, but inside it's completely fake. That's what an excuse is. And we tend to be making good excuses for why we can't serve the Lord right now, why we can do it later, a month from now, two months from now, six months from now, a year from now, a decade from now. At some point, we must stop making excuses and start obeying God. At some point... Unless we want to see what these people saw, they, got, they, they disobeyed for so long. What happened to them? They got carried away into exile. Now he's brought them back, given them one more chance, and they're about to mess that up. You would think they would have learned their lesson at this point. They've just spent 70 years in exile. You'd think you think they would say, hey, this time I got it right. But before we judge them, <laughs> don't we have to look in our own mirror? Because aren't we like that Sometimes. You know, God gives us a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. Then we go through some kind of really bad experience and we realize that's God disciplining his children. What, does God discipline us because he's mad at us and because he hates us? No, what does the New Testament say? It's that he disciplines us because he loves us like a father loves a son and he wants to keep the children safe. I had my grandchildren at my house last night. Did you I don't know about here, but the weather where I, I live an hour south of here, the weather was incredible last night. It was like it was like I don't know like I don't know. It was like summer almost. It was amazing. So we went out on the porch. Who thought I'd be on the porch uh, in December? We went out on the porch and we lit our little we got one of these uh, fake gas I don't know, fireplace things. When I lived in Vermont, I had like a real bonfire like with real logs. Now I turn a knob. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I've become one of those people. But anyway, so we're all on the thing. We're all sitting out there, and we're enjoying it. We can't believe we're on the deck, you know, with a little, little fire pit going, with a little fake fire, you know. Uh, you, know I can, you know. It's, just like, wonderful. So when we all get done, everyone goes in. Uh, I turn the logs off. Whew, all the flames disappear, and there's, like, a little robber rock right there. And my three-year-old grandson, he's fascinated. The flames are gone, and he reaches his hand out to touch the rock. Now, what do you think that de- the grandpa did? Oh, honey, you're so cute. Get, get you up two or three of those. No, I said, ah! I don't think he's I don't think I've ever yelled at him before he was like uh ah! anyway why was I doing that not because I was mad at him I was trying to rescue him I don't want him to grab one of those lava rocks which in his mind the flames were gone so was the danger but of course I know that's not true that's exactly what God is doing in our life and when we start making excuses sometimes God has to sort of do the "ah" thing to get our attention because he doesn't want us to continue to destroy our lives with bad choices well, look at verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, it says, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is really important. This is where we begin to see what's actually happening in the hearts of the people. Haggai asked the people why they're living in paneled houses. Uh, when the temple was in ruin. Now, when we think of paneling, uh, I don't know what you guys think of when you think of paneling. But when I think of paneling, I think of like that cheap stuff you throw up in the basement so that uh, you can like cover up an ugly wall. Uh, when I was about 14, uh, my dad and I decided to paint our room. and we, Neither one of us are particularly handy. Uh, you know, we're, I, I was like on the chess team in high school, so that's like my, I'm not handy, you know. and My father was less handy anyway so uh so well we decided to paint the room and we found a bunch of old paint in the garage we mixed it all together and got this beautiful shade of gray except that some of it was enamel (laughs) and some of it was latex Um, and so it looked really good going up on the wall um, but then it began to sort of separate as it dried and as a 14 year old boy what I ended up with was polka dot splotch sort of pink blue yellowish stuff um, yeah, that wasn't the look I was going for. And he said, manly, manly, you know. So we went and bought the cheapest paneling we could afford, and we covered everything, all right? So in my mind, paneling is what you cover up a mess with so that no one sees what's behind it, all right? That's not the kind of paneling They're talking about in this scripture. In this particular scripture, he's referring to fancy wooden paneling that had been imported from foreign lands and hand-carved with various motifs on it. Probably, it doesn't tell us where it came from, but it probably would have come in from Lebanon. That's where most of the the cedars of Lebanon were. That's where the big trees were. Probably would have been imported from there, perhaps from some other place. And They were hand-carved by someone. and It would have been like a story that would have been put on someone's wall, almost like stained glass windows, except it would have been wooden panels. These were very expensive luxury items. This is how we know that the not building the temple wasn't just a timing issue. This is how we know that this was actually a heart issue. You see, they had the time, they had the money, and they had the, the energy for incredible luxuries. But God's house was still a ruin. Uh, we find the time, the money, and the energy for the things that are important to us you want to know what's important to you get out your calendar it might be electronic these days get out your checkbook which probably is electronic these days too you look at those two things and you'll find out what's actually important to you doesn't matter what we say with our mouth (laughs) it matters how we use our time how we use our money how we use our talents we might fool others we may even fool ourselves but we do not fool god and at some point god has to call us to account for how we have used our time and our money and our energy for his kingdom Uh, in this job that I have now. Now, this was nice because Stephen just told me I could preach anything I wanted to, which I love those kinds of weeks. They get to pick whatever I want to. But sometimes I go to a church and they assign me a topic. And if they assign me a topic, you know why they assign me a topic? Because it's a topic the pastor doesn't want to preach about. Now, what do most pastors, I don't know about Pastor Stephen, but what do most pastors not like to preach about? money. So you'd be surprised how many times I have to go preach on tithing and this thing has fallen off my ear. We'll get it fixed here. I have to go preach on tithing to a group of people that I've never met. So I had this one particular pastor. He said, hey, our church, we don't, you know, we don't really give a lot of money. We don't, we don't have a lot of money. We're struggling a lot. He said, but the people have a lot of money. He said, my, my congregation, the church is poor, but the congregation isn't. He said, I need you to come preach on tithing and specifically talk about giving to missions. Well, I said, okay, I can do that. So I go to the church. Well, the first thing I notice when I pull up into the parking lot is there are two Lincoln Navigators sitting in the parking lot. Now, because I'm a little nosy, I look in the windows. Okay, this is the decked out version. Okay. This is the so that I get out my phone. You can do anything on the phone. This is all in the parking lot. It's a $75,000 vehicle, and there's two of them in the parking lot. Let me tell you something if you have two people with $75,000 cars in the parking lot, you are not a poor church. So during the sermon, I was preaching away, and sometimes there's these moments where you're not sure if it's the flesh or the spirit, but you just run with it. (laughs) And so I mentioned the two $75,000 vehicles in the parking lot and said, You are not a poor church. I said, the people who own those vehicles could themselves double your mission giving. And so sure enough, when the service was over, one man came to me without making eye contact and said, one of those is mine, here's a check. <laughs> <Anyway. laughs> and that church has never gone back to the lower level of giving they were in the past. So maybe Stephen wants me to come preach a sermon about tithing to you guys, I don't know. Now I've used my one good story, though, anyway. The reality is, is how we spend our time and how we spend our money reveals What is really important to us. By the way, there's nothing wrong with having a $75,000 vehicle, so long as you're also a tither. But if you're not a tither, I would really take issue with your $75,000 vehicle. And if you want to talk to me out back afterwards, we'll talk, okay? (laughs) (laughs) The people made excuses, and God called the prophet Haggai to set them straight. Now, I don't know what they were expecting when Haggai got up to preach, maybe they were expecting some encouraging thing to say oh oh you poor people you were carried off into exile oh you poor people you were 70 years in exile oh you poor people you've been 10 years back in the land oh you poor people i don't know if they were expecting someone to like like stroke their arm and hold their hand and sway back and forth and sing kumbaya i'm not sure exactly what they were expecting but what they got was a prophet who said what is your problem You've been here a decade, you got the stuff to make it nice, and you ain't done nothing for God yet. That's Terry's version, okay? The New International Terry version. Most of us don't like it when prophets point out our mistakes. We prefer preachers who comfort us and make us feel good about ourselves, and we do sometimes need encouragement. Uh, sometimes we're having a bad day, a bad week, and we do sometimes go to church and we just need the pastor to say all the right things that makes us feel warm and fuzzy. And thank God for those weeks, right? We need some warm fuzzy weeks. But sometimes we need some weeks that aren't so warm and fuzzy, because a steady diet of warm fuzzy sermons produce Christians who are warm and fuzzy but have no backbones. And what we need are some people, some churches, and some Christians who have a strong faith and whose checkbooks and whose schedules and whose energy and talent and the way they use their skills all reflects in their Christian faith and we need that more than ever the church in America is in trouble the church in America is struggling the church in New England is struggling and people say oh it's because the people out there don't believe anymore I'm not worried about the people out there I'm worried about the people in here do we still believe Are we still committed? If we're committed and we believe, I believe the ones out there will figure it out because they'll be watching our life. But when they see our life and we have a weak, flimsy, floppy faith, why in the world would they join up for that? I mean, I'm not going to join up for some weak, floppy, flimsy thing. Neither are they. But if they see something powerful that changes my life that I'm deeply committed to, that draws people in. And that makes people see something that they might be wanting to be part of. When we stand before the righteous judge at the end of our life, we'll be thankful for the prophets who tried to correct us before it was too late. That's a good place to say amen right there. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. God wants us to think about our actions. See, most of us, we're so busy just doing things. We have a list of things to do, you know, and, and, and all of our technology that was supposed to make life easier, I think it just made it more complicated because now I have digital. I have, like, stuff coming at me from digital things, oh, remi- like reminders and checklists. And, and the funny thing is it's on my iPad, it's on my phone, and it's on my computer all linked together. Like, it seems like once I click it off once, it should go off on all of them. But no, I get it from all different places to remind myself of all the things I have to do. We tend to be so busy that we never have time to stop and think. But there's something important about thinking, thinking about our actions, and how our actions, are they actually pushing me toward the Lord, or, or are they, they, they taking it away from the Lord? How do the choices that I make, how do they impact my life? Uh, at the first church that I served in Vermont, I was a little country church, and I grew up in a city. So to go to a little country church with, on, a, on a, in a town with one paved street was really the culture shock for me. I used to tell people, "You leave the church parking lot and you go 35 miles to the stop sign and turn left, and you'll see the highway." And people will always go, "Ho ho ho, 35 miles!" I said, "I'm not joking. It's 35 miles to a stop sign." That was we was rural Vermont. We had this one young man, Jason, fine young man, really growing in the Lord, and he was doing fantastic. And uh, he was I don't know, probably 19 or 20. He wasn't in college, but he was that age college age, even though he wasn't in college, he got this little job, I don't remember what it was, retail, wasn't really, it's just a job, there aren't a lot of great jobs in Vermont, you get whatever job you can get, Uh, but he found out that if he worked on Sundays, he could make one dollar an hour more, now he'd work for about three to four hours on a Sunday, and so he started doing it, and I said, Jason, how are you going to go to church if you're working on Sunday, well, I need the money, I said, we're talking about three bucks, I said, come to church, I'll give you three dollars, just come to church, and I'll give you the three bucks. That's all you're going to make. It's not like you're going to lose your job. It's just you're not going to make $3 more. I mean, $3. But in his mind, somehow, that $3 was a priority. And so he eventually got to where he didn't come to church at all. And within a matter of a year, year and a half, he became one of those church dropouts. It never occurred to him to think about how saying, yes, I'll work on that Sunday would impact his life. Now, I know some people are, are nurses and firemen, and they have to work every other week. There's first responders. I get all that, okay? We're not talking about all that. We're talking about someone trying to make a, $1, okay? I'm not sure that's worth sacrificing your faith for, is it? <laughs> I don't think so, all right? We tend to make decisions about how we use our time, our talents, and our money without thinking about whether those choices push us toward the Lord or draw us away from God. I'll tell you a story about how my parents learned how to tithe. My parents were great Christians. I just celebrated my first Christmas without my mom. She's gone on to be with the Lord. It was kind of tough, but we got through it. But my parents were great Christians. But they tell the story of how they learned to tithe. Um, they just gotten married, and they were actually living in Chicago. Uh, my father was working for the railroad up there, and they had to make a decision. They really needed a new car, and so my dad saw this pickup truck. It was a shiny red thing, and he wanted it really bad, but he figured out what the payment was, and they had to choose, will we tithe or will we buy the pickup truck? So they bought the pickup truck. Now, this was, I'm getting old, okay, so you're talking about a long time ago. Today, you pretty much almost have to have some kind of insurance on a vehicle, or the state won't let you register it. Back then, they didn't have so much regulation, so they didn't have any insurance on it. It sat in the driveway. He drove it back and forth to work for like two weeks. He was so proud of it sitting in the driveway. It looked all shiny and red, and then it came out one morning, and it was gone. Someone had stolen it, and he didn't have any insurance. <laughs> and so for four more years, he made a payment on a truck he didn't have, and he thought to myself, huh, I probably should have tithed instead. And so they learned to tithe. And to God is their witness. They never missed a tithe, a penny of tithe for the rest of their lives. My father's now on Social Security and lives on just a, a tiny little bit of money. And he's still a faithful tithe. It's the first check he writes every month uh, because he's not ever. He said, I learned my lesson. He said, a pickup truck wasn't worth sacrificing my tithes for the Lord. See, we oftentimes don't think about things like that when we make those kinds of decisions. God wants us to think about these things. God has called us to be not just acting people, but thinking people. We need to stop and think before we act, before we volunteer, before we buy something, before we make a decision about a job change. We need to stop and think before we act and then make a decision that will push us closer to God, not one that will pull us farther away. Well, prophets like Haggai, like this scripture we're looking at this morning, they make us stop and think sermons like what we're hearing today it makes us stop and think it may not necessarily get us to change our mind because you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink right but at least it stops makes us stop and think and some of you're going to spend some time this afternoon thinking i wonder if he was talking about me i wonder if steven sent him a text and said make sure you hit this this and this no he did not send me a text but the holy spirit did and so if the holy spirit is speaking to you right now about something that i'm talking about stop and think about it this is the warning this could be the last warning Why go one more step and end up where all that's left is judgment? So prophets like Haggai make us stop and think. But when we ignore God's warnings, we end up taking care of our own desires and wants first, and then all we have to offer God are the leftovers. And when there's nothing left over but crumbs, then that's what we give God, are the crumbs. There are a lot of people who give God the crumbs of their time, the crumbs of their money, the crumbs of their energy, the crumbs of their talent. They just give God the crumbs that are left. And then they wonder, why do I have such a crummy faith? Why is my faith so weak? Why is my faith not so life-changing like someone else's? When we give God crumbs, we get a crummy result. Do you, do I, do we want to stand before God, having only offered Him the crumbs? Oh, I'll never have what someone else has to give him. I'm in the wrong career for that. I'll never have a lot of money to give. Uh, I, I give him as much time as I have. I only have 24 hours in a day. I keep trying to figure out how to get a 25th one. I haven't figured out how to get that yet. I may not be able to do what everyone else can do, but I can do my best. I can do the very best that I can do. And when I stand before God, I want to say, God, I know I wasn't the best, but I gave my best. And I believe that if we do that, we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But sometimes we fail to give him our best. And then we're frustrated because it seems like we just never get anywhere. Verse 6 describes so many people that I know. Look at verse 6. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like that's life? There are so many people, oh, that is their life. And this is an interesting verse. It's an interesting thing for Haggai to say to them because remember, these are people who have built luxury homes with fancy features. Uh, They have carved panels in their living room and their bedrooms and all this kind of stuff, and yet they're in a mess. They're financially in a mess. Uh, This describes so many people that I know. Um, I live in a condominium complex, and uh, it's because I'm too lazy to cut the grass. Anyway, i like someone else to do that. And when it snowed the other day, I was really happy to hear someone else out there scraping it away, you know. Uh, But I was talking to my next-door neighbor. Uh, He's a lawyer, makes really good money, makes a lot more than I do. And yet he was talking about he is always broke. It's not so much the condo that he lives in, because I know what he paid for, because I know what I paid for mine, okay? It's the one that he also has at the beach, (laughs) and it's the one that he has in Maine, and it's the RV that he can't even park on our property because we don't allow RVs to be in our complex, so he has to pay someone else to have it parked over there. All those are the reasons why he's always broke. You see, a lot of times, it doesn't matter how much money we have, if we're not using it well, we're still in a mess financially. And if, if we're in a mess financially, it's probably because we're not saying, God, give me wisdom. On how to use this well maybe we don't need the second house or the third house or the fourth house or the timeshare I was talking to a guy the other day he has three timeshares I said, now, I've been to like two or three timeshare salesman pitches, and it's like torture. It's like a hostage situation. They will not let you go 45 minutes in. And then they they say, this will be cheaper than any vacation you've ever taken. And then they throw out like a $40,000 price. And I was like, dude, what kind of vacations are you taking? (laughs) Because I can do it a lot cheaper than that. This guy's got three. I'm thinking, how did he ever sit through three timeshare presentations and then said yes at the end? You didn't learn? It's amazing to me. And yet people do it. People do it because we don't say, God... Would you want me to have a timeshare? Have you ever prayed about that? Most of us didn't. We should have. (laughs) Then we probably wouldn't have one. I remember one time we negotiated. Mike, you want to ever buy a used car? You actually want my wife to go with you, okay? And take my wife with you to buy a used car. She doesn't know much about cars, but she's a really good negotiator. All right. I mean, they're they're like salespeople. crawling on the ground across to get to our car. to say, don't leave yet, don't leave yet. i got to make a deal. Anyway, one time she negotiated. We negotiated on this car, and the guy said, said, so what would stop you from signing right here, right now, and buying right now? And I said, well, we haven't prayed about it yet. He said, hmm, I've never heard that one before. (laughs) He said, do I need to leave the room? I said, no, but we do. And so we left and went down to McDonald's and stayed about 30 minutes and prayed, and then came back and bought the car. But he had never really thought about anyone praying to buy a car before. I think as Christians, We ought to pray about everything. I think that's what, see, everything that I own belongs to God. Not just my tithe, but my house. And I don't have a timeshare, but if I had one, it'd be God's too. All right, That's probably why I don't have one. He said, don't waste my money on that. Now, some of you have timeshares, and you're thinking bad of me right now, right? Sorry. Anyway, I just think they're really bad investments, all right? Anyway, the reality is, is everything we own belongs to God. Everything. All of our talents belong to God. Not just our skill to teach Sunday school. All right. But all the other skills that we have, all of our skills, even the ones that you're thinking, well, God couldn't use that for his glory. God can use anything for his glory. All right. God can use all of our skills and all of our talents and all of our time. And if we don't give those things at all to God, then we will never, ever have enough. We'll never have enough money. We'll never have enough time. We will never have enough energy to get it all done if we have not given it to God. In this passage, no matter how hard the Jews worked, no matter the quantity of their possessions, they never seemed to be satisfied. And the reason that they were never satisfied, the reason they continued to struggle, because the blessing of God was not on them. You see, they were living in disobedience to God's priorities. Now, that does not necessarily mean that everything they were doing was wrong. I'm sure there were some things they were doing that were, that were good, nice things. But it means that the focus of their lives was not the focus that God wanted them to have. Probably the saddest testimony that I ever heard. I was doing a funeral once for a fellow who'd passed away. He was a member of the church. And uh, I don't know if you guys do it here, but in Vermont, everybody gets up and says something. Like a little testimony time. Everybody, oh, my buddy, he did this and he did that. Well, this guy had been in the church, and so several people in the church kind of spoke about things he'd done in the church. Saddest thing I ever heard, though, was one person stood up. He said, I've known him for 40 years. I never realized he was religious. And I thought, wow, and that person wasn't trying to be rude or cause a problem. But for me and for all of us there who were Christians, we were like, ugh. For 40, you've been his friend for 40 years and you never realized that he was a Christian. Whew. It wasn't that this guy was involved in bad stuff, but somehow his faith was not the focus of his life because his best friend didn't even know he was a Christian. Hmm. What is the focus of your life? What's the focus of my life? Do those around us, do they know? Do they know that we're Christians? Is it evident by our life? If not, then what are we going to do? If the answer is no, that the focus of my life is not the things of God, what are we going to do? Well, look at verse 8. He says, go up into the mountains and bring down timber. The first thing we've got to realize is we can't go with God if we remain where we are. If we keep doing the same things that we have always been doing, we're going to keep getting the same results. And those results will continue to be just this sort of a haphazard, sort of halfway doing it kind of thing. At some point, we have to get out of our rut and we have to do whatever it takes that God has called us to do with our time, our energy, and our money. It is going to require change. Now, I know that's a hard word, especially for Baptists, because Baptists don't like change. You know, the only time Baptists like change is when the offering plate comes by. We want to put a little change in the offering plate. That's about the only time Baptists like change, okay? All right? But at some point, if we're going to, if we're going to change our lives, then we've got to get out of our rut, and we've got to do something different. We have to go up in the mountain. And we have to say, all right, God, I'm up here in the mountain. Show me, speak to me, talk to me. I need some help, and I'm willing to change to get it. Uh, we have to go up to the mountains, and we have to bring down some timber. All right, he told them to build this, this, this temple. So they had to go up to the mountains and bring down some timber. Once they got to the mountain, they had to choose which trees to take down. You see, not every tree was right for the job. Some trees were diseased. Well, let's not give God a diseased tree, Some trees were too crooked to use. Other trees were too small and needed more time to grow. They had to choose the best trees to use to build the temple that God wanted them to build. Now, that's an important truth in our own life. You see, we have to choose the best things in life that match God's priorities. Now, there are some things that are clearly wrong, sinful things. I hope we've already crossed those things off our list. I hope we're not making sinful choices. There's other things that are not necessarily wrong, but they may not be right for a godly focus in life. So there's other things. That are, they're, they're good things, but they're not necessarily the best things. You know what? And I, I'm probably going to step on a toe here, but I'll just, Pastor Stephen can apologize later for it, all right? You know what? You know what is the greatest idol in America today for young families it's sports that are played on Sunday morning and we have allowed it to happen as Americans we have now is there anything wrong with sports no my son was the captain of the basketball team another one was captain of the football team one of them was captain of the wrestling team he got a wrestling scholarship to college okay so there's nothing wrong with sports but when we allow it to take the place of God it has become an idol it's a good thing but it's not a godly thing how do we make sure that we honor God with every aspect of our life we have to make choices we have we cannot do everything we cannot use our money for everything we cannot use our energy for everything we have to make choices now our first priority number 1 must be trusting Christ as our savior and lord and if there's anyone here today who has not yet trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, all the rest of this is going to sound like a bunch of goobly gawks, some crazy pastor who just won't shut up, and you hope he'll end soon so that Pastor Stephen can come back, right? Uh, you know, but once we trust Christ as Savior, once our salvation is our priority, then everything else begins to make sense. I would go so far as to say that until we trust Christ as our Savior, I think it's actually impossible for us to make right choices in life on a regular basis. I think non-Christians can sometimes accidentally make the right choice, but I think to make the right choice on a regular basis, it requires the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. It's hard enough to do the right thing with the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, I just think it's impossible. Once we trust Christ, we have the Holy Spirit's help in understanding spiritual truth. The Holy Spirit empowers us so that we can think clearly and we can clearly apply biblical truth to our lives. I think it's impossible to think through all these things, all these priorities well, without the Holy Spirit helping us because our carnal flesh will always find a way to justify how to make this work out good for me. All right, But sometimes serving the Lord, it doesn't work out good for me. Sometimes when you serve the Lord, you have to make hard choices, difficult choices. When I left Vermont uh, to come sort of south, I tell people I moved back to the south because your winter compared to Vermont's a piece of cake. I lived in Connecticut for a while where it snows like three times a year, and they complain all three times. I was like, go to Vermont where it it snows three times a week, three times a day. You know, I don't know anyway. But but when we left Vermont, um, Vermont was struggling, still struggling financially. The the recession is still going on there. Um, you know, it took us, took us five years to sell our house at a $500 a month loss. And we had it rented, but we were renting it for less than we were paying on it. And then we finally sold it. We sold it for a $52,000 loss. It was painful. It was hard to sign those papers. Go, ah, It was hard. But if God calls you to go, what are you going to say? No, Lord, I want my $52,000. No, you say, God, let's go. Sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to help us to learn when a loss is actually a blessing because it's done for the Lord. Well, our first party must be trusting Christ as our Savior. Then once we've trusted Christ as our Savior and we begin to think clearly and we have our clear sort of thinking, then if you go on in verse 8 a little bit more, he says, Go up to the mountains, choose the timber, and it says, Build the house. It's not enough just to think about our 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 kind of thoughts and get away and get our mind all straightened out. At some point, we then have to follow through with action. I love James chapter two verse twenty-six: Faith without works is dead. We must act on our new priorities; otherwise, we're just talking, and talk is cheap. And we've all met the Christian who talks and 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 talks, but there's not much do. Okay, and I wish they would do. Look at the rest of verse 8. So that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Building the temple was not about honor for the people. Now, they were the ones that were going to use it. They needed it far more than God did. God didn't need it at all, all right? But building the temple was not about gaining honor for the people. It wasn't so they could say, oh, look at this building we've built. Aren't we amazing? No, it was about obeying God and giving honor to Him. When Christians start making right choices... Over time, our lives get better. When we begin to allow the Holy Spirit to help us think through how we're going to use our energy and our money and our, and our time and all of that, then, then life starts getting better because we start making right choices. And a series of right choices begins to make a right life, like a good life, a healthy life, a happy life. It's a good thing. But sometimes when life begins to get better, we're tempted to take the honor for ourselves and say, well, look what I did. I used to have this problem and that problem, but look at me now. I'm doing good. It's easy to take the honor for ourselves, but this leads to pride. And what does pride lead to? (laughs) Destruction. (laughs) It will quickly get us right back in trouble. As Christians, once we finally get our priorities all straightened out and we finally start living for God with the right priorities, then we must give all the honor back to the Lord. Because after all, He's the one that enlightened our brains and helped us to have those clear thoughts. He's the one that empowered us to make those decisions that were hard. He's the one that empowered us to make the choices that were difficult and the choices that maybe our non-Christian friends, maybe even some of our Christian friends didn't understand. But we knew they were the right choices for Him. He's the one that empowered us to do it all. How can I take any of the credit for that? He's the one that empowered us, so all the glory must go back to Him. Well, let's try to sort of bring this all to a conclusion. I've said a lot this morning, and some of you are probably thinking, Ooh, he's just giving me like a fire extinguisher drink. Anyway, just, uh, just try to pull all this together. Here's the four things that I've tried to say today. And if you didn't get anything else, just write these four things down. Number one, we must stop making excuses for not doing what God has asked us to do. Now, we're all different. We're all called to do different things. I don't know what God's asked you to do. He's asked me to be the director for the Baptist Convention of New England. That's what he's asked me to do, and I'm doing it with all of my might, with 110% of whatever i got. I'm doing it all for him. What's he asked you to do? Whatever it is, it's time to stop making excuses and just start doing it. Just start doing it. You know, I always wonder why it's so hard for the nominating committee to get all the slots filled. In a church that loves Jesus, man, it ought to take them about 30 seconds. They ought to be able to say, look at all the needs. And people, ooh, God's been calling me to do that. Sign me up. Yeah. That's what we ought to do. Stop making excuses for not doing what God has called us to do. Number two, think about what God has asked us to do and be willing to change. When was the last time we did some thinking? Just kind of got away and spent some time thinking and thinking, okay, God wants me to do this. (coughs) I've been making some excuses. Now it's time to stop that. (coughs) So what am I going to have to change to actually be able to say yes to God? Because most of us, if we're honest, most of us don't have time to add another thing to our schedule without taking something else out. Most of us don't have, unless your budget's bigger than mine, most of us don't have anything in our budget that we can just add anything significant to without taking something else out. So we're going to have to figure out what am I going to change to make room in my life for me to say yes to whatever it is that God is calling us to do. Number three, we must prove God's priorities have become our priorities through our actions. You can make a checklist all you want, (laughs) but if you don't ever get the checklist done, then (laughs) I mean, I guess it made you feel good to get the checklist, but we have to actually do it. We have to actually say, okay, God, I see I've made these excuses. Now I'm done. I thought through what I got to change. I got my little list. Now let's do it. This is a great time to do that. One year is closing out, a new year is starting. This is a great time to say, you know, I don't want 2020 to be just one more long excuse of all the things I didn't do in 2019, in 2018, in 2017, 2016. I want 2020 to be different. So let's make it the year of action when we actually start doing the things that we know God has put upon our heart. And then number four, we must give all the honor to the Lord, for He alone is worthy of glory. He alone deserves the honor. Because without Him in us, through us, around us, upholding us, strengthening us, empowering us, we couldn't get any of it done anyway. He is the beginning, He's the end, and He's everything in between. And so when we finally get to the end of 2020, uh, and it was a good year, our best year ever, don't say, look at me, I did it. We say, look at Him, He did it for His glory. Would you bow your heads with me? Maybe the Holy Spirit has used this to speak to you today. Maybe there's something God has called you to do. It could be different for every one of us. It could be something in the church. It honestly could be something just in your own personal life. But you know God has been calling you to do it, and you have given Him one excuse after another. But well, today you say, Lord, I'm done with excuses. Lord, give me time to think. Give me a willingness to change. And help me have action that proves that my priorities are yours. Maybe you're already halfway through that process. Maybe you did that last year, and you're actually having a really good year. You're like in a good spot, but you've been tempted to take the honor for yourself. But you say, oh, Lord, let me give it back to you, because I know I can't finish this job without your help. Perhaps you're here today, and none of this has made sense at all because you've not yet given your life to Christ. Oh, that's the first step. The rest of us just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo until we have Jesus. There in your seat, would you allow the Holy Spirit to talk to you? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to be your counselor, your comforter? Would you take a moment and pray there in your seat as you allow him to speak to your heart? Lord, I pray now that your Holy Spirit might walk up and down our aisles of this room and might touch our hearts, and that we might hear what your Spirit is saying in this moment. Lord, for that one who is not a believer, call them to salvation. Lord, that one who is a believer but has been making excuses before they've said yes to you about whatever it is you're speaking to them about today, may you break every excuse and they say yes to you. Lord, I pray for that one who's already pretty far along in their spiritual walk and they've already got their priorities straight, but they've been tempted to take the credit for themselves. Lord, today may they turn it back to you, for you alone are worthy. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.